Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, he's an author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest, and I'm particularly delighted to be talking with Caverly Morgan, a friend and also someone I have great respect for, and, and someone from whom, honestly, I get a teaching buzz just being around. <laughs> so it's kind of like a big bonus for me to be able to be here with her and with you. So Caverly is a meditation teacher, an author, and the founder of Peace in Schools, a nonprofit which created the nation's first four-credit mindfulness class in public high schools. Her practice began in 1995 and has included eight years of training in a silent Zen monastery. She's also the author of the new book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. So Caverly, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Friends, thank you so very much for having me. And I really, I'm just full of joy in this moment, full of delight and full of joy because it's a real pleasure to connect with friends over the topics that I know we'll be discussing. But in particular, you both. I've, I've just had such respect for your work, Rick, and, and for us, this podcast is a good thing. So I feel honored. Well, thank you. And it's great to be doing this with you too. Um, I would love to start just by introducing you to our audience a little bit more. And we can begin at the beginning. So you grew up, I believe, in the South, and you grew up Episcopalian, and you found your way to an eight-year retreat in a Zen monastery. And what the, were you the thinking? the line that connects those dots <laughs> is not necessarily intuitive for people. So I'm just wondering, what drew you to Zen? Well, I just want to echo that Rick's phrase right there is probably the thing I heard the most as I first uh, <laughs> decided to stay at the monasteries. What? was I thinking? Um, <laughs> because as you all can chuckle along with me, I'm, I'm not the most likely candidate for becoming a monastic. So based on how unlikely it was for me to, to become a monk, the thing that seems most significant to say about it is that underneath the layer of personality, which is I'm an extrovert. I adore being around people and in community with people. There was a there was a deep longing. So it didn't matter that the external environment of the monastery was sort of the opposite of what my own conditioned tendencies were. That the deep longing is what pulled me and I would describe that deep longing as a longing for truth and freedom and to know love, to know unconditional love. Caverly, can you briefly speak to truth and freedom, what you mean by that? Because I think many people would say that, yeah, I know what it means to have more love and to want more love, but I already see the truth of things. I mean, water's wet, rocks are hard, you know, I need a paycheck and <laughs> right in freedom, hey, I'm an American. <laughs> I can say what I want so, or whatever, right? What do you mean? Well, I'll just speak to my own experience since we're reflecting on the journey that brought me to monastic training. I didn't feel free in my own life. I felt 
like I knew what the script for my life was. I knew I was going to get married. I knew I was going to have kids. I knew I was going to have the picket fence. And then Rick, I could do my own voice for, you know, I'm a free American. Like that's, I had the American dream embedded in my upbringing. And I didn't feel free to make another choice or ask questions outside the ones that were given to me. And those were pretty narrow questions. So my longing was around wanting to know what was beyond what was asserted to be true and what my conditioned definition of freedom was. I wanted freedom beyond will we live in Virginia or will we live in North Carolina? And what about truth? From a pretty young age, I felt as though I recognized that the adults around me were playing some sort of game that I was constantly trying to suss out. It's like I knew there was a lack of truth in the game. So sort of walking around pretending I need to be the person society wants me to be, for example, is not truth. It's part of a game. And I had an intuition that the game was not bad or wrong, or it might even be something that I would find willingness to play, but that there was something underneath the game that was more true. Another way to say it was, I remember being a teenager and thinking, there has got to be something more to life than getting married, popping out some kids, doing some kind of career, and then dying. Like, there's just, there's got to be something else in there. And I didn't know what that was. I just knew I longed for it. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you. And I'm sure you're speaking for many, many people, if only to something that's been rumbling along beneath the surface, even if they've chosen to walk a very conventional path, even happily, but underneath it all, these qualities of truth, freedom, and love are, are just really fundamental longings of the human heart, of course. Yes. And Rick, I really appreciate that you just pointed out conventional path because I think it's so, I I try to underline whenever the conversation about my history comes up that I feel so strongly that it is not a requirement for someone to go to a Zen Buddhist monastery for eight years in order to pursue this longing. I think it's important to not see things dualistically as though a conventional path is inherently lacking of meaning. I think it's really important to constantly be dismantling this notion about what any kind of practice looks like. That was just the route I took. And not only while I was there, did I have that question of what the hell am I doing? Um, Mm. Very often, I also left realizing that what I did was unique to my own journey and that it's not required. Maybe my favorite expression that I've heard is a quote that I believe comes from Zen Buddhism. I could be wrong about that, but I think it's Zen. And it's before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. And I think that you're kind of speaking to that a little bit here. You can find profound experiences inside the mundane, and you don't need to be in a unique circumstance in order to realize them in a way that feels really authentic and powerful for you individually. And I think I've also gone through a little bit of an adventure in the course of my own life with, does there have to be something unique and special that is for me 
Or is it okay for us to be going on the adventure of I wake up, I have a pretty normal day, I love my partner, I go to bed, I do it again tomorrow. And I think that reconciling those two things can be a real project for people. And I don't know if I'm articulating this very well right now, but like kind of just coming to terms with the mundane parts of life and still finding a degree of those three aspects inside of them that you were speaking to, Caverly. Yeah, I mean, Forrest, I really enjoy hearing you describe that. And what's happening for me as you describe it is I feel like there's the content of what you're saying, but the process is so evident to me, which is how habituated we are to think that we should be having an experience other than the one we're having. Like, oh, is it okay for me to just enjoy what is and be here now? Or should I be more spiritual or should I be having an an experience? And I'm not saying you were, I'm just drawing it out for listeners, right? I'm being dramatic for listeners. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think this is an awesome point. Yeah, there's like a deep sense in so many of us and it's a conditioned belief that, well, but things should look this way. My journey should be more exotic or I should have gone to India or it's not valid unless I went on a long retreat or, right? Rather than the intimacy of, I truly know how to enjoy what is. How do you balance though? Classic question, of course. You know, the the tension, as you know, in kind of a shared Buddhist background, between, in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, tanha and chanda. What I mean is basically, you know, stressful craving, contracted, stressful, self-saturated craving, distinct from wholesome aspirations, longings of the heart, including for things like truth, Mm. freedom, and love, or to feed children and to make sure they have full access to a decent education, et cetera, et cetera. So we have that balance there. And, you know, Maybe a way to just ask this question is that I think for many people, there's a small, quiet voice in the back of their mind that has been there often their entire life, rooted in their childhood. And it now in middle age or late middle age, it's maybe even getting a little louder. And it's, it says essentially, is this all there is? You know, there's some draw. We're drawn to something beneficial. And it feels so different. Doesn't that quiet voice feel so different than some other voice that says, you need to do the dishes or you need a nicer car or, you know, you need to get more likes on your Facebook page, right? Can you speak to that difference and sorting them out even how you did that yourself? Yes. And I will always cut any notion of completion off at the path. So there's no, I did that for (laughs) myself, just to be clear. You're in process. Yeah. I just think it's important to recognize that we all are, and we all always will be. To me, practice is a journey in stabilizing in the recognition of who we truly are. And everything becomes an opportunity for stabilization if we use it that way. And so- in light of what you're naming, we become more and more stable in the recognition of the still, quiet voice. The thing that I think so profound about what you're saying is that because of how we're conditioned to think and therefore act in the world, we often are drowning out that still, quiet voice within. And 
I think what you're speaking to is the value of learning how to be in right relationship with that voice, how to have your actions arise on behalf of that versus on behalf of who we're conditioned to be, the conditioned storylines we are habituated to be believing and again, therefore acting on behalf of. I want to just kind of follow up on what you're saying there, Caverly, because I think that it's a it's a great transition into what I wanted to spend some time talking with you about today, which was how we can work with this conditioning. And I think it was really interesting, Dad, how you mentioned these different voices that can exist inside of the mind. And I totally agree with you that there is a tonal difference or a, a maybe it's even like a somatic sensation difference to the voice of craving versus like the voice of aspiration. And they can both push you forward But there's this different feeling that can be associated with them. I think that a lot of the time, it's really hard to tell the voices apart. And it's not always super cut and dried for people. And I know a lot of people who, I I think that they think they're being drawn by their positive impulses toward a certain kind of self-realization. And sometimes I'm not sure if that's actually true for them or not as an external observer. Of course, I'm not judging their journey, but I I think that we can just get wrapped up in some of these aspirational cycles that end up being a little problematic. And we've talked about that a bit on the podcast in the past. And so I'm wondering, Kaverly, for you, what do you think helps people distinguish between something resembling an authentic sense of this is what I really want beneath all of the conditioning versus all of the voices that we internalize over time? I think a really helpful question is the question, what leads towards suffering and what leads away from it. You know, at the risk of being dualistic, if I am listening to a voice and it feels really authentic and I follow that voice as if it's a trusted guide, and then the next day I'm just suffering like crazy, it can be, yeah, it could be helpful to be like, okay, who is driving that car that I got in yesterday? Yeah. Because I (laughs) thought it was my buddy. They said they had some candy for me. Like it all seemed good. It can be really helpful to look at where am I right now? Sometimes this is actually the first way I got in touch with the fact that I had negative self-talk because when I went on my first Zen retreat, I didn't even think I had negative self-talk. I just didn't, I was so not aware of my own internal negative dialogue that I thought I didn't, I just thought it wasn't an issue for me. And it was really helpful that the way I found the negative self-talk was to pay attention to just how I felt in the moment and to realize, okay, I'm Mm. feeling like crap right now, but nothing's going on. Why am Mm. I feeling so bad? And then I could get in touch with the fact that I was listening to a voice that I hadn't recognized that was saying, you're not worth anything. No one wants to hear what you have to say. Why are you even, why are you even showing up? That's interesting, Forrest, that I'm not sure we've ever pursued this in the podcast, Mm. which has to do with the role of will. And I'm going to use the word will rather than willpower, which has kind of a contraction in it. And I want to relate it to once we have clearly heard the voice of wisdom inside, including often it's, it's not just a still quiet voice. It's a voice, I think of a chorus of wise voices, one of which is often uh, very nurturing. It's self-nurturing. It's self-compassionate. It's kind. It's sweet. 
it, it says things to me like, to reveal something here, it's okay, sweetie, you've done enough today. Like, that's a, man, I'm getting the chills just sharing that with you. Like, that's a big deal for me as a big time task doer, as Forrest knows well, to have like a little a nurturing voice that says, hey, man, you can clock out. It's okay. So that's an example of, of a wisdom voice, and people might fill in the blank. Okay, now you've heard the chorus, let's say. What do we do about it? And when I look back on my own life, I can just see so many times when it was crystal clear <laughs> what the chorus was saying, and it was a legit chorus, and it was a trustable chorus. It was trustworthy. And yet on, on that given day, I did not exercise the will to act on that voice. And let's acknowledge mm -hmm. some pitfalls with will of self-criticism and self-shaming that we can get caught up in if we don't exercise our own will, which is almost like a taboo topic sometimes because I think people are so vulnerable to feeling shamed, ashamed or guilty or inadequate because they haven't exercised their will. And yet, if we can clear that underbrush, it's such an important subject for people. Mm. So I put a lot on the table there. So what supports people in doing that? Yeah, yeah. what supports people in doing that? I'm simmering in what you're speaking about because it's such a rich and also important conversation. I think there is tremendous confusion about the will, especially in our culture. So my husband's the first person that will tell you I have a very strong will center. Like I'm a jump in the deep end first kind of personality type. And my practice a huge part of my practice has revolved around aligning my will with the deepest knowing of who I truly am. Because there's such a huge difference between the will of a separate self and will in its most authentic form. And that's why I think this is such an important conversation for us today. The will if you will, of consciousness, the will of who we truly are is overflowing creativity, love, and possibility. The will of the ego is contracted. It is doing what's best for me and pushing people out of the way as I go about that task. But it's the same life force so again, it comes back to what's a natural, I think is a natural theme that's arising for us is what is this life, is the life force free to express itself in its purest form? Because as you said, there's nothing obstructing it. So to me, a huge part of practice is clearly seeing the conditioned obstructions so that we can let them go so that the will can be aligned with itself. What do you think, Forrest? I think that's really true. And I also think that my dad has, as Rick is often capable of doing here, wound his way toward the biggest sticking point in the whole thing because it's just one thing to know what you should be doing and it's another thing to do it. And you see that in ways large and small over and over again in life. When you were in monastery, and you talk about it a bit in the book, there were a series of basic tasks that you might have to do in a given day. I, th I think the example that you give in the book is cleaning the outhouse, which is a perfect example of this sort of a task because nobody wants to clean the outhouse. But you give yourself over to it in a kind of way. And in the act of giving yourself over to it, 
the undesirable task becomes a sort of practice. And you can't escape it. You have to do it. So it becomes this practice in surrendering that part of us that doesn't want to give over to the will to an extent. But I, I've only read about that. You actually lived it. And so I'm wondering what that was like for you, maybe what that felt like when you were more aligned with those positive aspects of your will. That style of training is exactly as you've noticed, a way to guide a person to an experience of surrender. Now, again, I don't think that's yeah. actually required. Yeah. I don't think you have to go into a schedule where someone's telling you what to do and you have to just do whatever they say because then you're up against the tension of, am I going to choose my egoic resistance right now or am I going to surrender, right? So mm -hmm. I don't think that's required. And one of the reasons I don't think it's required is because life is asking us Life is asking us to do various things all the time. And we are habituated to express tremendous resistance to what life is offering. I mean, what percentage of yesterday, just for you all and for listeners, would you say you noticed some resistance to what is arise? Resistance distinct from preference? Because that's a key distinction, obviously. It is a key distinction. I'm just talking about that moment where you're like, okay, am I going to go with kind of what is here or am I going to have like an egoic resistance to what is and then spend my experience fighting it? So in that surrender, of course, can be the unpleasantness of the smells arising in the outhouse. So Exactly. And then also there's the distinction between we can have unpleasant conditions that we take willful and skillful effort toward to manage. Like, oh, here's a sink full of dirty dishes. Oh, somebody else maybe should have done more of their share. Oh, I'm just going to do the dishes now, right? In which there can be a surrender to a condition that you're still trying to change. But I think what you're talking about is something distinct from those two things. That's the third thing where we're aversive and we're really caught up in it and we're personalizing it and ruminating about it and maybe even acting in ways that are full of friction to, and contentious toward other people. That's what you're zeroed in on, I think. Yes, I, yes, exactly. And you, you make an important distinction about preferences. And as you just spoke, the other thing that arose for me is the importance of also bringing in the word willingness because that's a big yeah. piece of it, isn't it? So there are yeah. all the dishes and I have the willingness to do them, even though I did them yesterday and it's my husband's turn. Yeah. I have yeah, yeah. I have the, the willingness. Yes. <laughs> I can find the willingness to disidentify from the egoic conversation and surrender to what is. So monastic training is a is a way to turn that process into a practice that one can access in order to find willingness even in difficult moments. But for us to go back to your original statement, the word should really stood out as a flag to me because hmm. we, we go through this whole thing, don't we, without actually pausing to say, but are we asking where the should even comes from? So your statement was, I know I should be doing this, 
But it's just mm-hmm. quite rich to even before I ask yeah. myself if I need to find the willingness to do this thing, is that should arising on behalf of truth and love and understanding? Or is that should arising on behalf of all my conditioned standards? Because how my will gets aligned might depend a lot on whether or not, like which of those camps I'm in, right? Totally. And I'm going to turn this into a practical example and try to answer your question that you asked about how much time do we spend kind of going to war with with what is. And I think that I spent a lot of time yesterday going to war with what is because I was embroiled internally in the fact that I feel like I should have been going to the gym more regularly over the last month. Full disclosure. Me too. Full disclosure. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're, so I was like, ah, oh, I've been so good about it. And then I kind of fell off the wagon. It's that end of the year thing, you know. Ah, oh, there it is. So, okay. So yesterday I was like, wow, Forrest, you really should go to the gym. You should have gone to the gym the day before. You should have gone to the gym the day before that. But today is the day that you should go to the gym. There are different possibilities here. The first possibility is that I'm like, uh, Forrest, you are turning into an unathletic slob and you really got to kind of whip your butt in gear here. And the way you're going to accomplish that is by going to the gym. And that can have a certain tone associated with it. Or it can have a framework of, I had hip surgery a couple of years ago and I've got these low back issues and man, it would really benefit me to acquire some more core strength and stability or become athletic in these various ways in order to support the health and flourishing of my body. And these two things have very different tones associated with them, but they can get us to the same place. I'm totally there for, hey, be careful about that first category, particularly when we get into a lot of like shoulds and standards and things like that. But I also know that the second category is true, and it would probably be good for me to do these things. And it would certainly be more beneficial for me to go to the gym than it would be for me to uh, play another round of my video game of choice yesterday. I know it would be a good thing, and yet it's really hard to do a good thing sometimes, even if I know it would be good. And I think that that's like the fundamental sticking point of personal growth, mental health in a lot of ways, sometimes spiritual practice. Where like we know a thing at some point would be good for us and we just have a hard time doing that. And so, yeah, so I'm just wondering what you think supports people in doing that. Yeah, Forrest, thank you. That's such a beautiful, concrete example that we can all relate to, myself included. And I want to bring us back to this beautiful expression of unconditional love that Rick put forward when he said, sweetie, it's okay to not do more right now because It's almost like there's a third option, too, I think, in what you're saying. I agree absolutely with how you're framing this, and and I relate to it deeply. And it was new for me, and it only arose because of the practice I had cultivated to have an experience of, sweetie, what do you need? And, And it feels really different in terms of quality, the quality of the experience, to respond to I really do need to move my body. I had a hip surgery last month and I, now that I check in with it, I'm aching a lot. And I really do want this body to be able to have a different experience. So I think it's so foreign to us. And I know it was foreign to me before I trained monastically and was given a very conscious practice around unconditionally loving reassurances to even feel that 
sense of love permeate so fully that the movement of my will could be in that soup instead of any residue of of should at all. And again, I'm not trying to to say that all shoulds are bad or anything like that, but it it is different, isn't it, when we just are resting in treating ourselves the way we would treat anyone we love deeply. I don't know quite the right way to put this, but I, I think that we found our way to something really interesting, which is this natural tension that exists inside of any form of accomplishment seeking. To what extent are we, do we want to be oriented toward an end or should we just be hanging out in kind of the flow of our lives? And maybe to return to what Rick was saying earlier on, how can we increasingly align ourselves with the positive parts of the will? the things that carry us towards the ends we feel are are good for us, good for other people, and what supports us in not getting distracted by various shiny objects, whether they be conditioning shiny objects or they be momentary, id-driven desire shiny objects or whatever else, while also knowing that like sometimes there's a place for shiny objects. And I think that balance is, is kind of part of what we're speaking to here. And I want to bring us back to at the core of this conversation, and I think you opened the way for this, Rick, we're we're actually asking what is the will and what is it acting on behalf of? So is this really a personal will that is here to maintain a personal identity? Is the will this mechanism that is moving through the world as a maintenance machine for a separate sense of I? Is there another energy that we might also call will that's not used in that fashion? I mean, I would suggest that there is. Maybe, you know, language fails us because we might not know what word to call that. But the way we can tease out the distinction here would be to say that that the difference between personal will and the will of what's larger than the ego. And then will might seem a little confusing because we only know this mind, the limited mind knows will in a very limited sense. I only know will to be something that's used to maintain a separate sense of me. What helps me maybe is to sort of mark loosely three ways of talking about will. And so one is the first of these that you're describing. I think of it a little bit as the will of the Tao, the will of the moment. And we can, to some extent, we can just feel that something is moving through us and we are the will of the ocean. We are a local wave, but it's the will of the sea moving through us. And perhaps, and for some, I don't know if you go there yourself, Caverly's Zen is very ambiguous about this point for all kinds of pragmatic reasons, but underneath it all, some might say it's the will of the divine or the will of the yes. ultimate ground or spirit moving through. So, okay, there's that one. Then there's the will where you listen to that little voice inside that says, sweetie, it's okay to clock out, or sweetie, you need to stop smoking cigarettes and other things. And so it's quite personal. It's something in you that can feel quite intimate inside you. And then will, I think, is expressed as surrender. Surrender to whether it's that quite intimate personal voice or the first example of surrender to the great calling 
that's moving through you. But then there's a third kind of will that's toward the good, where you just keep plugging. <laughs> you keep plodding forward. You know, you're Sam and Frodo who just keep going and diligently toward a good end. And that too, it seems quite personal. You're just doggedly going to get down the mountain. I've been there before. You're doggedly going to, you know, help somebody move out of their home or something. So anyway, what do you think about those three kinds of will I'm talking about? And then I definitely want to move into how to exercise our will. Rick, I really appreciate your framing a lot. And it's helpful to me because I'm I'm sitting with, what are the ways we can make this most simple because it can sound sort of conceptual and yeah. and complicated and what feels in this moment like it might be the simplest i'm trying to find a, a very simple framing to respond to you and tell me if you think i hit it what shifts when we simply say that that will of spirit that you put in bullet point number 1 is actually all there is. But that will of spirit gets put through the prism of this body-mind. And so it becomes personal as the will of spirit moves through this body-mind. And so then my personal life experiences are in relationship with, we could say, in light of bullet point number one, spirit's will. The reason I want to frame it like that is because I can honest, I've never said it this way before, but I can honestly say that my life has been a journey of practicing letting go of everything that gets in the way of that union, spirit's will manifesting through this body-mind, which is going to look really different than the way it would manifest through my brother's body-mind. I hear this, and I hear it as, as your genuine practice and realization. You're embedded in the ground. You, whether we call it spirit or reality or the Tao, you're really embedded in it. And for you, simple things like the choice, let's say, to go to the gym are for you an expression in a palpable, lived sense that's not abstract of that ultimate ground. I think that's an unusual experience. It's one I aspire to, I, I respect it, I see it, people talk about it, it's great. In addition to that, if that's available for people, I'm just kind of calling out in practical terms the value of listening to and making space for, protecting uh, that still quiet voice inside, which often takes a very nurturing form that can feel quite intimate and personal, and also making space for a kind of deliberate, executive function-driven, stubborn, determined, <laughs> gritty, feral in the best sense of that word sometimes, determination to just keep going, which often shows up in very simple ways. People who are, you know, they're in the third hour of an eight-hour shift where they have to stand at a counter at a cash register. And so I guess I would just kind of call out, A, the value of listening, whether it's the ultimate ground moving through you, the force of reality and all that, or whether it's the still little voice inside, listening to that, and then also surrendering to it, and also yeah. being resolute, diligent, and determined. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Rick, I just, I really want to acknowledge that that is the very practice that I'm pointing to. Yeah. So 
how do we get to a place where we can feel like spirit is free to move through us in the ways that spirit moves through this body-mind? We do these practical things. We listen to the still small voice within. And as Forrest pointed out, we're like learning how to distinguish what's the egoic voice and what's the still small voice within. That's part of the practice, that discernment. We learn how to access willingness so that when I'm there and I do not want to do the darn dishes tonight, I know how to surrender to my own integrity. I said I would share this load even though I'm busy. So I'm going to do them. I'm going to find the willingness. That's actually another part of the practice of this surrender that you speak to. And one of the things that I got most excited about with this book was taking what feels large, like what does it mean to have spirit move through you, and to create conscious and practical and grounded pathways for accessing that. And I think you're naming, both of you are naming the importance of keeping this stuff on the ground. No, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's really lovely about the book specifically is that you share a whole bunch of practices inside of it. This ranges from labeling negative self-talk. You were talking about how you learned how to recognize that you had some negative self-talk yourself, building up a strong inner nurturer, inner mentor, I think is how you referred to it in the book, recognizing aspects of our conditioning and so on. Is there one practice that you think is particularly useful for people maybe that we haven't named yet? If I had to say one practice, it would be the practice of learning how to listen to one's heart. Because all other practices are going to be in relationship to that practice. So if I can listen to my heart, then it guides me to a palette of practices which could be useful. But if I can't find my heart, if I can't find the heart of who I am, then there's really no other practice that can benefit me because all practices can support the ego depending on how you go about them. Mm -hmm. So if I have a practice of meditation, but every time I practice meditation, I beat myself up because I can't clear my mind, And my story about meditation is that it's not a good meditation unless my mind is clear. It's not actually bringing that practice of meditation isn't actually bringing about the very thing that I long for. I was thinking about the fact that in this book, which we could also, I could also happily have repeated at the very beginning, is absolutely one of my favorite all time psycho spiritual books, Mm -hmm. The Heart of Who We Are. And that's saying something. And in that context, you have this emphasis on waking up together or awakening together. And I thought about together in multiple ways. One way is together with the voice of the heart, (laughs) together with putting your engine in gear and actually getting stuff done that moves you forward toward the goals that you have that your inner voice longs for, that you keep deferring day after day for various reasons, right? So together with that, and and certainly also together with others, including in diverse, multicultural, respectful, humane, and enlightened self-interest in also kinds of ways, you know, awakening together. So I wondered if you could 
give us a headline or three, at least, about awakening together generally, and then also certainly awakening together in America and in the world in a, in a time in which certainly some forces in society are manufacturing and amplifying divisions of various kinds for their own narrow and divisive interests. The focus on together is one of the main calls that prompted me to write this book. And it's because when I was training monastically, I was very, I would say, hyper-focused on a personal practice. And I wasn't focusing on the collective. I wasn't focusing on systems like systemic racism that were arising on behalf of a collective ego. I wasn't actually even framing when I looked at society, I wasn't framing what I saw in terms of collective ego. And I realize now that we have what we think of as personal egos, but we also have collective egos. And really a prompt for me was seeing what I saw in the high school classrooms with Peace and Schools. I saw that students were waking up to who they really are in the context of togetherness, and that it was mm. deeply profound. That, for example, the student who has always felt like the class nerd, as they reveal their negative self-talk for the first time in this safe, as safe as possible, as safe as we can create it, container in the classroom, we can never you know, guarantee safety, but in that safe environment, that the student who's revealing that negative self-talk and then hearing the negative self-talk of the popular kid, mm. the quote-unquote popular kid, and having them both realize that they have the same internal negative self-talk and that there can be a sense of togetherness that forms as they feel, as they practice, and as they aspire to get more fully in touch with with who they are. That's just one beginning example of, of what I saw. And it really deepens and continues on from there. I saw that the students could pay attention to personal conditioning that gets in the way of us knowing who we truly are, and that the students could pay attention to the collective conditioning that gets in the way of us knowing who we really are. And that we become tremendous supports to each other as we take the journey together at, you know, the tagline of the book is realizing freedom together as we realize freedom together. And then I can't help but to at least plant a seed about an even deeper level that is something that the book proposes, which is that we don't only have one personal heart. If we're talking about the heart in the way that we are today, we have a shared heart. So we don't just have one solo isolated being. We have shared, our very being is shared. So we're also waking up to that together. We're waking up mm. to who we are, not just in a personal sense, but we're waking up to what it is that unites us, that we share. We're waking up to that together. And that's, to me, really the the heart of the book and why we're creating my dear colleague Rashid Hughes and I are creating a, a course right now that is focused on moving through the journey of the book in community. 
mm. moving through as a as a collective. And I hope, you know, the book wasn't meant to be read just privately in your own room. It can be read that way, but it it's really meant to be experienced and the practices are meant to be gone through in community as as collective. When you think about awakening together, including in divisive times, if you will, fragmenting times, like how do you think about it at a societal level? Just to mess with your mind a little, Caverly, and I appreciate your willingness for that. Think about Episcopalians in your own Southern roots, waking up together with people of color who are doing Buddhist practice, like Rashid and yoga as well, waking up with Christians who really are engaged at the heart with compassion, waking up with secular mindfulness folks who are absolutely uninterested in the language of spirit. How do we awaken together? Is that question even answerable? Well, I think we awaken together by committing together to see what gets in the way of peace. There has to be that commitment, right? Now, that's not the same thing as I need someone across a line of difference to commit to peace with me. If if it mm-hmm. might my practice might be I have to accept that they're they're not interested in that and that becomes part of my practice. But if there is a yeah. shared commitment to peace, then what's powerful about this journey is that there are conscious, concrete, grounded, and practical practices that helps us see what gets in the way of that collective peace. And a lot of it has to do with undoing collective conditioning. Right. So, for example, in spiritual settings, we love to walk around and say, oh, we're, we're all one. And yet we're not, if you look around, just even our spiritual settings, many people will report to you, I do not walk in that space and have a felt sense of we're all one. Right. There's implicit bias manifesting all over the place. There might be microaggressions, right? So to unpack the collective conditioning that keeps that in place as part of our spiritual journey, or even we could take out the word spiritual, just a journey to wanting to be more mindful and more present in my life, to me is an important part of the journey. Beautiful. So as we finish soon, I wonder, Carverly, uh, if you could offer maybe a couple more practical suggestions for people to uh, come home to your innermost being. I think the what's arising right now to comment on is the importance of not seeing coming home to our own being as something esoteric or yeah. even really spiritual. Yeah. That we that coming home to our own being is the most natural and ironically enough, effortless thing we can do. We come home to our own being every time we sleep deeply. Well, that's why we love saying to someone, did you sleep deeply? We love getting to hear, oh yes, I did. We're, we're, we're happy for them. We know that they had an opportunity to rest in their own being and we, we delight in that. One thing that I can offer is the importance of that remembrance, that coming home to our own being is, is simple, it's effortless. It does take a little bit of that will that we're talking about, right? I have to not, I have to allow my attention to relax from all these shiny objects Forrest was talking about. I have mm-hmm. to let it relax from those things 
so that it can rest in my own being. Yeah. But that it's not esoteric. It's not fancy. It's not hard. I don't need to be special. I don't have to go to a monastery. Yeah. I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to work hard. My own being is available and accessible to me in every single moment. It can be no other way. Maybe that's a beautiful way to finish up here, though. You'll indulge me a postscript. I'd like to read a quotation from your beautiful book. You write, This book is about the act of being. It's about knowing a happiness you can't explain because you have no reason to point to. The joy of pure being. Of knowing who you are, resting in presence, and acting in the world on behalf of this deep knowing. This book is about the pleasure of being aware of being aware. Seeing what gets in the way of this, personally and collectively, and learning how to let it go, to undo, to realize freedom together. Thank you, Caverly Morgan. And thank you so much, Forrest. It's really, I, I don't know that I've ever had a podcast where I get to talk to two people, and it's, it's really fun and creates quite an <laughs> engaging dynamic. I enjoy it very much. So thank you both so much for having me and for your presence and for your commitment to supporting others in remembering the heart and knowing who we truly are and being able to act in the world on behalf of that knowing. This podcast and all your work, Rick, are all expressions of wanting that for the world. So thank you for your commitment. Rick and I had a great time today speaking with Keverly Morgan. And our conversation focused on two interconnected topics. On the one hand, how can we recognize and release our conditioning? Everything that we get from the world around us, from parents, from friends, from social norms, from our own internalization, as we talked about during the episode, of all of those various shoulds that dictate so much of what our life looks like. And then on the other hand, how can we apply our will more effectively, particularly in the pursuit of more positive ends? So what's aspirational, truly aspirational, and in alignment with what we really want from our lives on the one hand, and then on the other hand, how can we release some of the shoulds that are no longer serving us? And I thought it was a really interesting conversation because my personal belief is that it's very easy to get excessively reductive and simplistic about all of this and to go, you know, it just feels different when you've got the good voice versus the one that is pulling you toward uh, less positive ends or maybe less of what you really want to achieve in your life. And I just don't know if that's true. I think that a lot of the time people spend big chunks of their life in service to a voice inside of them that they really believe with every fiber of their being is that positive aspirational voice. But they wake up the next day, as Caverly said, and over and over again, they don't feel good. They aren't pleased with the way that the previous day went. And they just go, ah, well, if I had just been even more in alignment with that little voice, then things would have gone differently. But it turns out that the voice is the problem in the first place. So how do you figure out for yourself whether you're following a more egoic voice, maybe, or whether you're truly kind of giving yourself over to support your more positive ends? 
And I don't know if there's a super simple answer to that question. I don't know if there's like a, you just find these three things and you just know what the good voice is. I think that it's something that is found through practice. And I really loved the indicator that Caverly gave uh, that she returned to a couple of times throughout the conversation. Really two indicators. The first one is, does this thing lead to suffering in ways large and small for me? And you can find in yourself whether or not this thing leads to suffering. And I think that, to use my example from the episode, me not going to the gym leads to suffering in a lot of ways, including the little ways in which I kind of beat myself up about it. But it also leads to suffering in more practical ways, where I go to bed at night and I go, ah, you know, did I really get everything that I could out of this day? And I think that there are less useful parts of that reflection and more useful parts of that reflection. And so part of this is about separating out the more useful from the less useful, aligning toward that positive aspiration while also letting go of some of the more self-judgmental content that can ride along with it. One of the things that Caverly mentioned during the conversation that I wish we had had just a little bit more time to talk about in more detail is this idea of the separate self and how there is a real intimacy to the concept of awakening together or finding love and truth together or doing anything in community. And for many people, myself included, there is this real desire to preserve our individuality. I have that extremely strongly. I have a, I have a very strong sense of the egoic eye. And I've had to do a fair amount of work over the course of my life to relax that. And that's still very much an ongoing process. As Caverly said, none of us are finished products. And I am certainly not. And as I talked a little bit during my conversation with Diego Perez, who goes by Young Pueblo, it's really useful if we're trying to fulfill our aspirations, our practical aspirations in the world, to have a sense of the egoic self. You know, it's really useful in order to conduct a podcast episode for me to have a sense of who Forrest is and who Caverly is. But that same egoic eye that is so useful in some circumstances really gets in our way in other circumstances, including ones where the focus is stepping into community and letting go a little bit of our conditioning and of that sense of what is best for me and moving into more of an us framework. And so the holding of that ego can be a real impediment toward any kind of collective work or collective action. And that's something that Caverly has clearly really seen inside of her work. We've had a couple of conversations recently with people with Zen backgrounds, and what stands out to me in those conversations are these two different qualities. On the one hand, a lot of precision and specificity in the way that thoughts are expressed and the words that are used. And on the other hand, this underlying quality that's less about the words and more about what it's like to sit in the experience of the words, if that makes any kind of sense to you. But there's just this felt quality of love and spaciousness that people with this practice background are often really capable of. And I really felt that with Caverly. And a lot of the time it felt like she was moving us from the words toward the experience. And that's been really useful for me personally. So again, Caverly's book is The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. If you're interested in learning more about it, I've included a link in the description of today's conversation. Her work is really fantastic in general, and I would encourage you to check it out. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll get a whole bunch of bonuses in return. 
Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.